K-A-L-W. Greetings, everyone. This is Tommy Shakur Ross, coming to you from the free side of the wall and co-producing this special episode of Uncuffed. I hadn't even been out of prison for 60 days last summer when I was on an international flight to Oslo, Norway with the Uncuffed team. We got invited to the world's first international prison radio conference. And here I was. I thought San Quentin and Solano were the only ones in the whole world producing radio stories in prison. But yet some countries have been producing radio stories for decades before we even began. And the conference was a chance for us to meet our counterparts from all over the world. And in this special episode of Uncuffed, we're going to hear stories from some of our friends we met in Norway. We'll go first to the UK, which is home to National Prison Radio, the world's first national prison radio station for people in prison. We'll hear an excerpt from one of their podcasts called The Secret Life of Prisons, which is hosted by Paula Harriet and Phil McGuire. Phil actually helped to organize the prison radio conference, and Paula used to be incarcerated herself. In this piece, you'll hear them talk to a young man named Zahid about what he was thinking when he was sentenced to a life term in the UK. The Secret Life of Prisons is all about the hidden stories of people behind bars, and this story is from a series they did on The Secret Life of Lifers. Have a listen. The Secret Life of Prisons I was 23 years old when I got my sentence. So at that time then... When you got the sentence, what was your life like? You know, I was someone, you would phone up and say, like, we're going out tonight. You definitely take me out. You know, I was a fun guy. I liked having people around me. You know, if I saw a group of younger brothers of my friends and so forth, I'll make sure I buy them food. I, I, I was just a likeable person. I liked myself a lot as well. My family was dependent on me. I was a, a member of the community someone who is significant in the community I felt you know a happy person someone who you know you can come up to and talk to feel relaxed talk about anything someone who can give you advice generally and someone who was very kind of serious but at the same time someone who can lighten up the mood and make everyone feel comfortable so it sounds like you were a happy confident respectful and respected person yes I I was yes I'll, I'll agree with that and can I take you now to to that moment you were stood in the dock and the sentence was handed down? Can you try and remember and describe for me the words that you heard? I think my first reaction, you know, as soon as I said guilty, I looked at my family. We was joint enterprise, so I had two other co-defendants. And so when the first guilty verdict was handed down, you know, in the background you hear, oh, and then someone crying, and then the next person. And then when it was my turn, you know, it got louder. And a lot more people was uh, making noises, unhappy noises. And I kind of looked up and tried to assure my family that I'm okay. And at the same time, I was mindful that um, I didn't want to come across as this is nothing, I don't care towards anyone else. But there was a strong part of me that was really annoyed with the jury members. So I looked at them and and I really looked at them and thought, do you seriously know what you've just done? because some of them were really upset too. And I think it was puzzling for me to look at them and see them kind of, one, two of them crying. And and I'm thinking to myself, why are you upset for? You've just sent me down. It's because of your 
decision making that this is happening now. So why are you upset for? It was really puzzling. And at the same time, of course, you know, I was listening to what the judge was saying. So you were taking in a lot, weren't you? Like in that short sort of minute or two when you hear guilty. Yeah, what else was running through your mind? In that moment? Yeah, I mean, I was getting myself prepared to, okay, I'm going to be hit with a sentence. And I was thinking figures in my mind. And I was thinking, okay, um, if he goes anything above that, I'll be really upset. And if he goes around there, um, okay, I'll I'll be able to deal with it sort of thing. Because that would have felt fair. Well, the judge said I was going to give 30 years, but based on so-and-so-and-so, I'm going to give... 15 years minimum sentence. And so it kind of sounded like, you know, I'm doing you a big favour. I would have given you 30 years. And at the time, I could, I said to myself, you couldn't have given me 30 years because that wasn't true. And you know that wasn't true. So stop trying to make it out like you're doing me a favour. But at the same time, now that I've been in and out of prison and now I've seen so many people easily get 30-year sentences, I, I kind of started to, re, I did realise and say to myself, you know what, I was fortunate that I didn't easily just get 30 years um, because it just gets dished out just like that. So you got a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 15 years. That's correct. Zahid, can you tell us what were the array of emotions you felt after after the immediacy of that sentencing had, had subsided and it started to hit home what was happening? For me, it was be tough, be resilient, just be strong. That meant that there were a whole lot of emotions in me bottled up. And the only other people that could understand that is people who were given sentences, just like me. Because your family you can't really talk to because you don't want them to realise that you're going through a tough time. The staff inside, there's a strong barrier between us and them. And that barrier is not just noticeable when you're in prison but it's also before you come to prison I saw the way my whole case was dealt with and in terms of being impartial you you feel like there's you and your legal team up against the prosecution team the judge the police and it just feels like the whole government authority everyone is against you and so when you come in prison you feel like you have to defend yourself against that whole team again because the officers are also part of that mix then because when you go with a problem to an officer and you say look um this isn't right that isn't right the kind of voice that you you hear generally is well you're convicted you're here you have to do your time there's no room for any sympathy and so where that leaves you is you know you either become extremely passive or you become extremely strong. There is no middle. What did you become? I became, in the start of my sentence, extremely strong. That story you just heard was from The Secret Life of Prisons, a podcast produced from the UK's Prison Radio Association, which operates their national prison radio. So I can relate to Zahid. For me, it all came to a head when I was sentenced to life in prison when I was only 22 years old. I thought that I would die in prison. But then I knew I had to be strong mentally, physically, and spiritually to survive such a sentence. The next piece we'll listen to comes to us from Australia's Jailbreak, which is produced at a community radio station in Sydney. Jailbreak is a weekly national prison radio program that features stories, 
music and poetry for those who are incarcerated as well as their families and communities. In this interview, you'll hear from a man named John and another man who's anonymous because he's a professional athlete. They're currently incarcerated at John Maroney Correctional Center outside of Sydney. Both of these men come from the indigenous community in Australia, which is also known as the Aboriginal community. Aboriginals have one of the highest incarceration rates of any group in Australia. You'll hear these two men refer to their indigenous names and also talk about their families, loss, and rehabilitation. Just want to say hello to all the people joining us from abroad. Yep. This is John, and coming from John Maroney 1, it's a medium prison. It's probably one of the only jails in the state that you, you get, get a chance to um, involve yourself or enrol in a lot of programs. They genuinely want to help you, and majority of the inmates here are all on remand. So this is probably one of the only jails that you can do a lot of programs on remand and, and, and get your certificates and, I suppose, try to address your drug and alcohol issues um, and get a chance to speak to um, jailbreak. Before we mention our, our tribal names, I'm a Dungari man. He's a Gamilaroi man. So we're the indigenous, like the Indians in um, America, we're the indigenous of Australia. My totem is a Gawana. My, my totem's a Prey Mantis, Dungari. We've lived here for over 60,000 years. We're the first traditional owners of the land. And we're incarcerated at the moment at John Maroney. This is my first time in jail. John's been here a couple of times, but there's a hell of a lot of Indigenous people. In the prison system, yeah, yeah it's a most percentage in the prison of New South Wales anyways, yeah. one of the states in Australia. And we're lucky to be in one of the jails where they actually do sort of look after us, or not look after us, looking to help us to better ourselves. By the way, this is John speaking. Um, my, my people's from the north coast, Dungari tribe. Yeah, but I've grew up in Sydney over the last 20 years and I've got three beautiful kids that live down here. I've been in and out of prison like since '98. Yeah, I, only only every now and then I have contact with them over the phone. I haven't really been around enough to. That's pretty sad, John. So why have you been in and out of prison? I suppose not having the family support. I mean, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. the struggles from home. Like my mum and dad split up when I was young, and it wasn't the same. Like didn't get the the mother and fatherly love. Just started getting in trouble from a young age. Yeah, well, I can, I can relate to that. A lot of indigenous kids. The majority of our families back in the day have come from broken homes. I'm from Narrabri, so I'm a proud Gamilaroi man. Although when my dad died, he died when I was two. So mum moved us to Sydney, I'm the youngest of three. We come to Sydney, and I understand what you're talking about, John, because we had no family whatsoever in Sydney. A single mother coming down with three kids that are big smoke. And um, probably the whitest curry black fellow inside, I feel, because I don't know any about my culture. And it's taken me to come to jail to learn how to play the didgeridoo. So that's something that I'd love to get in contact with and I will definitely be doing that on the outside when I get out of here. If you don't mind me asking, can you tell us a bit what led you to come to jail? Like, yeah, um, well, um, 
Like I said, I was talking about my mother. She was me, me rock. My mum was only four foot nothing. She got stomach cancer two years ago in 2019. And then um, I, lucky I wasn't workers' comp, so I got time to spend with mum. I spent the last 18 months 24-7 with my mum and I uh, gave her an end-of-life medication, so that was pretty tough. And then after that, I went off the rails. You know, I got on the drugs, hitting the ice there pretty bad at one stage, and I'm just in here for a common assault um, and intimidation, but I had um, bail charges or something else. So that's how I ended up in here. I've only got a little four-month lagging or whatever they call it, or sentence. I've done two months already, and these have been the toughest years of my life, tougher than any footy game, put it that way. Just enough time to clear your mind, Yeah, yeah, well, I've been clean since well, my birthday was 16th of February. I turned 50 then, but I've been clean there yeah, before that. Done a few programs in jail here, and really made me think about what I've done and everything that's happened to me, it's all my fault. I'm not gonna blame anyone else. At one stage, I was blaming everyone. But I was the one who made these silly mistakes, and you know we all make mistakes. But I'll, you just got to learn from them, and I'll, I'll definitely learn from this. Being a high-profile person as you as you are, I, what, what impact do you think it's had on yourself and your family coming into jail? Well, the one thing in jail that don't make you feel any special, you know, no one's better than anyone else. Just another number. Exactly. Coming into jail has made me be very humble about what I've got on the outside or what I had on the outside. Everything's been taken away from me on the inside, but um, I'm making the most of my time here. I talk to people how I want to be spoken to. Being high profile, um, I was a bit embarrassed about it. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. I'll give anyone the time of day or the last $10 I've got. But um, it has sort of hurt me on the outside. I've lost my kids at the moment, but programs I've done in jail have made me realise that I've got to rectify that and um, my main aim on the outside is being a better father and a better man. So coming to jail, although I feel like I've hit rock bottom, this could be the start of something else. That was an excerpt from Australia's Jailbreak. The two men you heard from mentioned they were in a prison that has a lot of opportunities and programs. Now our next story takes place at a prison much closer to home that also has a lot of programming, San Quentin. We'll hear an excerpt from the podcast Ear Hustle. You might have heard of it. It's the first podcast created and produced inside of prison and hosted by Nigel Poor and Erline Woods. What you might not know is that Ear Hustle and Uncuffed were both born out of San Quentin Radio where I trained in radio alongside Erlon and Nigel. After knowing each other at San Quentin, it was amazing to get to hang with them both at the conference in Norway. And I can definitely relate to some of the guys you'll hear in this story who are also reckoning with life sentences. Here are two of my favorite co-hosts, Nigel and Erlon, taking it away. This episode starts some time ago, election night, Tuesday, November 2nd, 2004. George W. Bush was running for a second term. John Kerry was his opponent. But no matter who they wanted to win, prisoners could not vote. Nope. 
But a lot of guys in prison have been following the campaign on TV. And for some of those guys throughout the California penal system, the presidential election was a sideshow. All we were thinking about was Prop 66. Proposition 66, I remember uh, watching the TV that night and I was sitting in my prison cell and I went to sleep knowing that we were way ahead. And I thought, tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to go home at some point. The idea of Prop 66 was to reform the California Three Strikes Law. One reform was that if your third conviction was not a violent or serious crime, under Prop 66, your sentence might be dramatically reduced. Yeah, it was going to be a huge change. Here's how Curtis got his third strike. The crime I committed was I walked into a liquor store, I snatched two $20 bills out of the cash register, no weapon. Uh, after I got a caught for stealing the $40, I pled guilty to burglary, robbery, and they gave me 50 years to life. Currently, I'm on my 23rd year. The first time I'm eligible for parole is 2044. But on Wednesday, November 3rd, 2004, Curtis and other three strikers woke up hopeful that Prop 66 had passed, and they just might be getting out sooner than expected. Then when I turned on the news and I saw that Prop 66 had fallen, that it did not get passed, uh, I, along with a lot of other three strikers, it was, you could cut the tension uh, with a knife. It was a really sad, sad moment. I mean, it, it was, it was devastating. And a lot of three strikers were very at, uh, um, at their wits end, I would say. This is life in prison. Things on the outside, with the law, with our families, they happen beyond our control. Our hopes go up, our hopes go down, and when they're down, you got to figure out how to carry on. That's what we're talking about on this episode, hope and hopelessness in the face of these really long sentences. Some prisoners have every reason to hope, because they may only have a few years left on their sentence, so they see light at the end of the tunnel. But for guys under the three strikes law, hope is harder to come by. They gave me biblical time. Obviously, they thought people can live that Joseph and all them people lived in the Bible would have you. We know that ain't a factory. What is it for a man, about 75, 70, you know, what have you? E and I went out to the yard to talk to some three strikers about their sentences. My name is Stacy Bullock, and I have 150 years to life. So how old will you be when you go to parole with 150 years? That's up like 208 years. <laughs> I have 425 to life, so I have to do at least 100 years before I'm eligible for parole. I was sentenced to 1,010 years uh, and 19 life terms for uh, armed bank robbery. My name is Fanon Figures. I'm serving a sentence of 210 years to life. When I go to my first board appearance, I'll be approximately 250. I won't go up for parole until... Jesus will come back first. Erlon, Curtis said he'll be eligible for parole when he served 50 years. So compared to those guys in Yard Talk, dare we say he actually got a light sentence? Yeah, he got a light sentence because if he gets up in, well, let's see, 2044, he'll only be 82, meaning he'll only be on crutches, a walker, a wheelchair, a cane. They're going easy on him. I mean, you know, but as we know, Curtis don't feel that way. I feel like somehow I have fallen into this type of, of loop or hole or whatever you want to call it 
that I have been labeled the worst criminal in the history of the United States of America. I've never shot a gun, I never molested no kids, never raped nobody, never put my hands on nobody. I mean, surely they're going to see the air of their way of giving me 50 years to life. Okay, when I hear a sentence like that for the kind of crime he committed, the first thing I think is that this guy's feeding me some bullshit. (laughs) And, you know, we always say we aren't investigative journalists. We can't do that much fact-checking on the stories people tell us. Nope. But I found this so hard to believe that I actually asked Curtis, and I've never done this before for any story, if I could see his legal status summary. That's the sheet that lists your crimes and convictions and all that. Every prisoner has a copy. And as far as we could tell, what he told us was true. He got convicted for three robberies. None of them involved a weapon, and none of them were violent. But they were three felonies, three strikes, so the judge had to give him a long sentence. That's just the way it is. Thanks to Ear Hustle for sharing that story with us. That's the way it is with these life sentences. Sometimes it feels like a joke because these are astronomical years. You got to laugh to keep from crying. But guess what? That guy in that story, Curtis, he's now outside. He was able to leave San Quentin after he received a commutation from Governor Jerry Brown on December 24th, 2018. He's now a preacher, an author, and a husband. So it goes to show you, even with these bureaucratic laws and red tape, change is possible. Now in our fourth story, we're going to Colorado and hearing from Inside Wire, which is the first statewide prison radio station in the United States. It broadcasts out of radio studios at three facilities in Colorado and reaches people who are both inside and outside of prison. In this piece, you'll be introduced to a woman named Amber Pierce, who's at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Amber is a playful kind of person, and she learned to use humor as a coping skill, as you'll hear in this interview series, Behind the Mic. Behind the Mic on Inside Wire. Stories of the people across Colorado who keep this radio station in your ears and on the airwaves. This is Behind the Mic. Today on Behind the Mic, we get to meet Amber Pierce. Amber is a producer for Inside Wire at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Amber walks us through her journey finding humor in hard situations, a painful past that led her to prison, and her path to healing that led to the work she's doing on Inside Wire. Before we get started, I want to share that this episode mentions experiences of abuse. If you choose to stay with us, I ask you to listen with compassion and an open heart. Amber's story is not just about challenges. It's also a story of hope. I'm Sarah Berry at Denver Women's Correctional Facility, and this is Behind the Mic. For 
first, I just want to thank you for coming into this space. Like, it's such an honor to be able to have you in here and to be able to have this time getting to know you um, and to delve a little bit deeper into who Amber is. Sure, doll. Anything yeah. for you. So, like, you've already brought humor into this already, <laughs> which I love. Has humor always been a thing for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, uh I've always been like this uh, ever since I was little. <laughs> Me and the sisters would find things to play with. How many sisters do you have? I have two. I have one older and one younger. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm the middle child. How did you find yourself using humor to deal with the circumstances around you? Well, growing up, we were very, very poor, so we all had to share a bedroom, and shoving three of us in the same room at the same time and three girls lord have mercy oh wait i tell you what my oldest sister was always the fashion coordinator my youngest sister she was always the artist and always the intellectual one and i'm like well where do i fit in you know i gotta find something that's gonna be my niche that's gonna be that i have to bring to the sister group and so I found humor in things, you know. How would you say that the interactions with your sisters helped you to become the person that you are today? My oldest and I don't talk very much anymore. Growing up, she was never around. But my little sister and I, we were thick as thieves. If she hadn't have been there, I don't know where I would be, you know? Mm. Um, having somebody there to listen to you, to be there for you, is essential in life. Do you feel like you've ever had experiences where you didn't have someone to listen to you? Yeah, I would say so. What was that like? It was like being lost, and it hurt. I'm sorry that that's something that you've had to carry. We've all had stuff to carry. It's just part of our journey, and that's okay. Yeah. How did you find healing? I had to come to prison. Prison is what brought healing to you? Yeah. How so? No lie. Um, I had to learn to stand on my own two feet. And learning to stand on your own two feet brings healing, brings growth, brings maturity. It brings a lot of things. And even though people don't consider prison a blessing, I do. It saved my life. In a lot of ways. What do you think you've gained over the last 11 and a half years? Oh, that's a good question. The strength to hold my head high. To know that I'm not 
my crime. To know that I'm not a burden to those that love me. That I am loved no matter what people say. Would you be willing to share what led you to prison or or choices and decisions that you've made in your life that brought you here? Sure. Um, my choices in men, meaning I went from one abusive relationship to another. My first husband was physically abusive. And after nine years of that, I left him. And then I met my second husband. And that's where I jumped into that. It's like I couldn't be alone. I couldn't be without a man. And little did I know that he was sexually molesting my daughter while I was at work. So I told on him. I got 18 years. He got three years and was out within the first year. How do you process that during this time? If you don't feel comfortable at any time, Amber, you can tell me too, okay? I continuously process it. Because times like this, it's hard to know a man like that is still free. You're very brave. I hope you know. And I hope you recognize that. I'm not. (laughs) You sitting here across the table from me and being willing to open up something that's very vulnerable is extremely brave. There are a lot of women that struggle with this. There are a lot of women that have a hard time processing abusive relationships, decisions that they made that brought them to prison. How do you recognize? How do you take accountability? How do you um, how do you learn to live with wrong? And you get to be a voice for that. And that is incredibly powerful and it is beautiful. Thank you. That was Sarah Berry interviewing Amber Pierce for Inside Wire, Colorado Prison Radio. You know what stood out for me with that story? There was humor, hurt, and healing. And as you heard in all these stories, prison experiences are pretty universal. And being able to tell our stories and reframe the narrative without fear is what Uncuffed and our partners in Prison Radio International are all about. Now, for our very last segment, we're going to go to India 
where the Tinka Tinka Foundation has been encouraging prison reforms in the country through art, culture, literature, and media. The foundation launched its first radio program in the district jail in northern India in 2019. And in this piece, you'll hear a song born out of its radio program during the COVID-19 pandemic. Songs are instrumental to India's Tinka Tinka Jail Radio. This one was composed and performed by a radio jockey named Sheru. He is incarcerated in the central jail Ambala, which is in the Indian state of Haryana. In this song, which is in the language of Punjabi, Sheru is urging people to wear masks to keep themselves healthy. Have a listen. कोरोना तो डर बंदया पता नहीं कदों किथे लग जाना कोरोना तो डर बंदया पता नहीं कदों किथे लग जाना मुंह ते मास्क ला ले तू नहीं ता तू दुनिया तो जाना मुंह ते मास्क ला ले तू नहीं ता तू दुनिया तो पिछले साल करोना ने सी कर कई हजारा उजाड़े कटे हेठा गड्डिया दे सड़का उत्ते रुले विचारे कटे हेठा गड्डिया दे सड़का उत्ते रुले विचारे बड़ा मुश्किल हो गया सी That was Sheru, a radio jockey for Tinka Tinka Jail Radio, helping us to feel the spirit of what life is like for him and his fellow incarcerated brothers and sisters in India. Thank you so much to Dr. Vardika Nanda for sending that song to us. She founded the Tinka Tinka Foundation as a charitable trust in India. And thank you to everyone else who made this episode possible. Ryan Canero, Phil McGuire, Kate Pinnock, Amy Standen, Bruce Wallace, and Andrew Wilkie. And of course, the people who shared their stories. This episode was produced by myself, Tommy Shakur Ross, and Sonia Paul. Thanks to the rest of the team at KALW Public Radio. Nina Gansler-Debs, Angela Johnston, James Rollins, Andrew Stelzer, Ben Trefney, Eli Workshafter, and our sound designer, Eric Maserati E. Amber Crombie. Our theme music is by David Jassy, the Swedish phenom. Uncuff gets support from the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Learn more about Uncuffed and support our program. Go to weareuncuffed.org. Thanks for listening.